knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. to start with a question, a question that I hope the answer is yes. Have you ever had a really great week? And hopefully the answer is yes, and I want you just to to think about what that week was. For those of you who are married, uh, maybe it was the the week of your honeymoon. I know Jenny and I were blessed. Someone gave us uh, the use of their timeshare, so we got to go to Maui for our honeymoon. Uh, it was an amazing week in beautiful Maui. Or, you know, maybe the greatest week of your life is that week that you were, your child was born, you held them for the very first time. Uh, I'll never forget the feeling of becoming a dad and, and holding Scarlett for the first time and then, uh, Eden as well. And it was just a, an amazing week that obviously continues on, uh, after that as well. Or, you know, for maybe for some of you, you know, the best week of your life was that week that you finally passed all those exams and you aced your test and then you graduated from high school or you graduated from college. And uh, I know that, you know, when I graduated from Bible college, there was that uh, sense of satisfaction and a accomplishment. It was a great week in that time. Or or maybe one of the greatest weeks of your life was a, a week that you went and served the Lord on uh, a mission trip. And uh, I know I've been on many mission trips. Here's the one just recently in Kenya. But I always feel like all of those weeks that I've been on those trips, I, I would look at back and say, you know what, that was one of the best weeks of my life and what God did in and through me. And, um, you know, for those of you who have the blessing of it, maybe you got to go and spend a week in Israel. Uh, and you think, man, that was one of the best weeks of my life, just traveling around and seeing, you know, where Jesus, you know, was and ministered. Jenny and I have had the privilege of going. Uh, I would love for us as a church to go in the future. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful trip. Uh, a great thing to see. And, you know, the reason that we ultimately determine that a certain week in our life is great uh, versus other weeks that we have is because of the benefit we receive from that week. Maybe it's the, the benefit of marriage, the benefit of children, the benefit of graduating from college, the benefit of being used by God on a mission trip, the benefit of getting to go somewhere that you've always wanted to go in your life. And I'm sure that each one of us have had a week in our life where we receive some kind of benefit, which makes us look back on that week and say, you know what, that was the greatest week in my life. But you know what, there's a week when we look through history that should be considered the greatest week in all of humanity. Because what happened during this week brought a benefit to all mankind greater than anything I just suggested with marriage or being a parent or graduating or any of those things. And that's the fact that God made possible the greatest benefit of all, the benefit of salvation from our sins, the benefit of a relationship with Him. The greatest week in all of human history starts with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it continues with Jesus' death on the cross, but it culminates with the greatest event in all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now last week I said you know, I was going to do a few teachings leading up to this celebration of Easter that would hopefully help prepare us you know, for what we're celebrating at this time of year. And we looked at last week just the importance of inviting and bringing people to Jesus. And we saw those friends who brought their paralyzed uh, friend to Jesus. And, and I noted the importance of just inviting people for this next service next week and the importance of them being able to hear the good news of what God has done for them But this morning we're going to continue in our preparation for Easter by looking at the triumphal entry, by looking at the events surrounding Jesus starting the greatest week 
in all of human history. And then after we look at that this morning, we're going to continue our preparation this Friday right here, 7 p.m. We're going to have a good Friday service. It's going to be a great time of just reflecting upon what Jesus did for us. We're going to have time just to receive communion together as a family, a time just to really look at what he went through, what he sacrificed on our behalf. And we're going to have an extended time just to worship him on Friday night. So hopefully you can make that. And then next Sunday... We'll be looking at the resurrection, but it'll also be a very gospel-centric message. And we're praying that the Lord would bring, as we invite people uh, that don't know Jesus, to come and see them get saved. And so this great week starts with Jesus' triumphal entry. And as we look at the triumphal entry this morning, we're going to focus on four main things. First, we're going to see how Jesus orchestrated how and when he would enter in triumphantly to Jerusalem. Second, how Jesus' triumphal entry was different from the triumphal entries of that day, but it was also different from what the Jews were ultimately expecting of their Messiah. Third, we're going to look at the two different responses that people have to Jesus' triumphal entry. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus' response to those who reject him to those who reject him as their Messiah. And now we're mainly going to look at Luke and Mark's gospel, but actually all the gospels, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a rare occurrence actually where you have all four gospels dealing with the same event. Typically you have two, three, uh, but even John, which is often very different, all four of them deal with this event because it is such a significant event in the life of Jesus And so we're going to start with looking at something that Luke reveals to us. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28, says this. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they sat on him. So Jesus' disciples and him, they're, they're making this journey, and this journey is getting closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem. We're told that they're now in Bethpage and Bethany, and as you can see from this map, you go through both of those little towns right before you get to the city of Jerusalem. And so right before Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, he comes to his disciples and he picks two disciples and he gives them a mission, something that they need to do prior to Jesus entering Jerusalem. And he tells these disciples, I need you to go to the next village And when you get there, you're going to find a colt, which is a a small donkey. And I want you to loose the donkey, and I want you to bring the donkey here to me. Now, when the owner of the donkey says, hey, why are you taking my donkey? You have to tell the owner, the Lord has need of it. And so these two disciples, they're obedient to Jesus. They go, they find this donkey, and they bring this donkey back to Jesus. They put their garments on top of the donkey, and then they place Jesus on the donkey so that he can ride it the rest of the way as he enters it into Jerusalem. Now, something I want you to note is that Jesus is the one orchestrating all these events leading up to his entry into Jerusalem. He's the one orchestrating when he's going to enter. He's the one orchestrating how he's going to enter. And notice, he chooses to enter riding on a donkey. And he's the one who sent his disciples to go get this donkey. But you know what? He also would have been the one that would have to move in the heart of the man who owned this donkey to be willing to release it when someone says, oh, the Lord has need of it. Oh, the Lord has need of it. Well, here, take it. I mean, donkeys at that time were very expensive. Most people did not have them. It was something that was a luxury. But imagine you you come outside of your house and you find two people breaking into your car looking to steal it. And you say, hey, why are you trying to steal my car? 
I'm sure the response, the Lord has need of it, would probably not be sufficient for you to say, okay, unless God had already moved in your heart. You might be pulling out your gun and saying, you know what, you're about to meet the Lord unless you get out of my car. But, you know, the reality is, unless God moved in this man's, who owned this donkey's heart, he wouldn't have just been like, oh, the Lord has need of it. Here, take my valuable donkey, do whatever you want with it. And so Jesus is orchestrating all of this so that he can do what ultimately he's called to do. But also Jesus is um, orchestrating when. So the how, riding on a donkey, but also the when he would enter Jerusalem. He's the one who chose this specific day, which was April 6, AD 33. And as we're going to see, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, many people are going to declare him as the Messiah, declare him as king. Now, Jesus knew that as he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that this was going to be the response that many in Jerusalem were going to have to him, that they would declare him as their Messiah, declare him as their king. And the thing that I find interesting is that Jesus is the one orchestrating all of this with the knowledge that people are going to do this. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that up to this point, every time you have someone who recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, even demons who say, you're the son of God, he silences them. Or he tells the other people, you know, don't tell anyone. He'll do miracles like raising people from the dead or things of that nature that clearly show who he is. And, you know, he's always trying to keep it on the down low. You know, I don't want people to know this yet. He's been stopping people, stopping people all the way up to this point. And now all of a sudden there seems to be this shift. The man who's been stopping people from revealing who he is is now orchestrating an event that would have lots of people declaring that he is the Messiah. And he has picked the time. He has picked the day. It's at the very beginning of Passover week, A.D. 33, April 6. He's picked the place, Jerusalem. He's even picked where he's going to go through the eastern gate. He's picked the way he would travel on a donkey. You see, Jesus had a specific time planned. When he would go in Jerusalem, when he would receive the praise, when he would receive the adoration, when he would receive from the nation of Israel the recognition that he is their Messiah. And all the other times when people tried to declare Jesus as Messiah and King, he wouldn't receive it. Why? Because it wasn't God's appointed time. But now it is. Now it's God's appointed time. All the other times, nope, it's too early. Nope, we're not going to do it. Nope, you're trying to make me king, but this isn't the time. But now it is. Now it's time for Jesus to be declared for who he rightfully is. The time that God had ordained. You see, this is something that we need to recognize. That God, far before this, before Jesus ever came to earth, had ordained this specific day that Jesus would go and ride into Jerusalem declaring who he is and having people recognize and worship him for who he is. In Daniel chapter 9, we see a prophecy that tells us the specific, the exact day that the Messiah was meant to ride into Jerusalem and declare who he is, to ride in triumphantly. Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. I love Bible prophecy. I love looking at things that God shares that predict future events. And this is one of my favorite future predictions because it's so specific. And I just love how God took something. It wasn't just kind of this general thing, but it was something very specific. It comes to the exact day of when the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. Now, I wish we had time to go into all the details of, you know, this prophecy and how it's broken up because it's very fascinating. But I'm just going to give you the highlights so you at least hopefully grasp what this is saying. What God is revealing here through uh, Daniel the prophet is basic, basically a math 
equation. And this math equation reveals exactly when the Messiah was to enter triumphantly into Jerusalem. We're told there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, if you first read that, you're like, I don't get what that's talking about. But this Hebrew word translated weeks literally means a period of sevens. Now, this could speak of a period of seven days, or it could also speak of a period of seven years. And in the context of what we're seeing with this prophecy, it's speaking of a period of seven years. So every time you see this word weeks, it's speaking of this seven-year span of time. Now, it's important to note that Daniel gives us the start of when this equation starts and also the conclusion, when this equation is going to end, and he gives us the mathematical numbers that we need to work with in the middle. And so it starts, notice, when the command goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So when we find out when that happened, when was the command that went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's when this timeline starts, and it ends when Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem. In the middle is this equation. Okay, well, Nehemiah chapter 2, we know when the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem was made. It was made by King Artaxerxes on March 14th, 444 BC. And this is a very important date in this prophecy because this is the starting day. We start with this day because this is when the, the, the command went out. The king gave this command, you can go, you can restore, you can rebuild Jerusalem. So starting on this date, now, what did Nehemiah do after he gets this? We're told in troublesome times, he rebuilt the walls, he rebuilt the city, just like Daniel's prophecy says. So from that decree on March 14th, 444 BC, we're told there'll be 70 weeks, meaning seven seven-year periods. Now we get into our math, this is kind of easy math, seven times seven is 49. So we first start with a 49-year period. Now, it's very interesting that he breaks it up this way. At first, it's going to be you're going to get to rebuild, and there's going to be this 49-year period. But we're told in the book of Nehemiah, guess how many years it took to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? 49 years. Uh, and so that's his first step. They're told they can do this. It takes them 49 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then after that, we have another math equation. After those 49 years, we're told there'll be 62 weeks or 62 seven-year spans of time. So once again, we do our math. We multiply 62 times 7, and you get 434 years. So first, you have this 49 years that it took to rebuild, restore the city of Jerusalem. Then you have 434 years. When you add those together, the total amount is 483 years. Now, Daniel tells us in this prophecy that after these 483 years are complete, an amazing, long-awaited event is going to transpire. The Messiah, he's going to show up, and he's going to enter Jerusalem triumphantly, and he's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Now, here's where the prophecy gets a little bit amazing. As soon as this decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, we start counting the days. So you got March 14th, 444 BC, King Artaxerxes, he gives this decree, go restore, rebuild Jerusalem. And at that moment, we start counting the days that Daniel prophesies about. Now, something to keep uh, in mind here is that prophetic days are based on the Bible and the Old Testament and the Jews, which had a different calendar than us. Their calendar is a 360-day calendar. Our calendar today is a 365-day calendar. And so when we're adding up days, we use the biblical calendar, which would have been the Jewish calendar of 360 days. And so when you multiply 483 years times 60 days, you get 173,880 days. Now, if you count from March 14th, 444 B.C., 173,880 days, guess what? You come to a very specific date, April 6, A.D. 33, the exact day that Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. So hundreds of years before the triumphal entry of God revealed to Daniel the prophet 
in this amazing prophecy the exact day that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. You know, prophecy in itself is great because it helps prove the inspiration of the Bible. You know, people kind of throw out these things, you can't trust the Bible. Well, one of the things we know about the Bible is it's inspired by God. How? There's no way Daniel could know this. There's no way Daniel could guess of, yeah, I think the Messiah is going to show up, you know, on this specific day. I mean, these prophecies are so specific about the future, and they've come true, and it just proves it's one of the evidences that God truly did inspire the Word of God. So Jesus is orchestrating what God had ordained many, many, many hundreds of years uh, before this. And this is the specific time that God had ordained. And so Jesus doesn't just orchestrate when, he also orchestrates how. And this is something important as well, because not only does Daniel speak of the day, but Zechariah the prophet speaks of the how. Remember Jesus gets his disciples, go get me a donkey? Well, Zechariah 9.9 tells us this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. This prophecy was given by Zechariah 550 years before the Messiah, Jesus Christ, entered triumphantly in Jerusalem, but it was already prophesied by God, this is the way he'll come. He's going to come lowly, riding on a donkey. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem a donkey because it was ordained by God, it fulfilled prophecy, but also it revealed the kind of way that Jesus was coming. And this is something that's important to note here because in Jesus' day, there was a lot of triumphal entries, especially among the Romans. The Romans were very, this was a common thing that they would do when, you know, an emperor was successful in some kind of uh, campaign and, 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 you know, destroying um, some other place and having a, a war that was won. You know, here's a painting depicting uh, a triumphal entry of uh, Emperor Constantine who won a war. But the person who won this war, the typical triumphal entry was you would ride a horse of war. And it was declaring how you are this you know, warrior king who have just conquered these people. And before you, on this big parade of your triumphal entry, would be some of the people that you have conquered and now enslaved that are before you and demonstrating your power and demonstrating your rule and demonstrating how you have just conquered your enemy. And so it was declaring you are this conquering king. That you're there to rule, you're there to reign. But notice that's not how Jesus came. He didn't come riding on a war horse because he wasn't coming to declare, I am going to be the conquering king. He wasn't coming to declare that, hey, I'm making war against all of Israel's enemies and I'm going to conquer all of them. He didn't come that way. Instead, he came riding on a donkey. And the significance of that was when you would enter a city that way, you were coming as a man of peace. And so instead of riding the war horse, which was saying, I'm coming to, to rule and reign and conquer, no, I'm coming as a man of peace. You see, that was really the reason why Jesus came the first time. He came to bring peace to mankind. He came to bring peace between God and man. The Bible makes very clear, all of us are sinners. All of us have breaking, God, broken God's commands. And the, the reality of that is it made us enemies with God. What we did brought us into that relationship of being God's enemy. And Jesus came to bring peace. He came to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God. But in order to do that, he had to deal with the thing that was separating us from God, the thing that was making us the enemy of God, which is our sin. And so he paid for our sin on the cross in order to bring peace between us and between God. That we could go from God's enemy to God's child. From being lost in our sin to being saved from our sin. And so the first time Jesus came, he came as this man of peace. Riding on a donkey instead of riding on a horse of war. But with that mindset and that understanding, I think there's another important thing to take note of. The Bible says that there are two comings of Jesus. The first coming has happened already a couple thousand years ago. 
Jesus came on a donkey as a man of peace, but the Bible reveals, and I believe sometime soon, there's going to be a second coming of Jesus. And guess what? He's not coming on a donkey as a man of peace the second time. He's going to come as a conquering king riding a horse of war. Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 16 says, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the white, with the robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a very picturesque scene. It's speaking of the second coming. And notice Jesus isn't coming on a donkey, lowly riding to me, a, a man of peace. He's coming on a war horse. And he's coming to declare war on those who are fighting against him. And look at the, the picture of who he is and then ultimately what he's going to do as a sword comes out of his mouth to wipe out his enemies. That's what he's coming the second time to defeat the enemies of Israel. But you know what? The Old Testament speaks often of the second coming and the king coming to destroy enemies. And that's really what the nation of Israel was hoping for. They wanted this kind of conqueror. They wanted this kind of king to to help them defeat the Romans, to help them overcome their foes. That's what they were hoping in the Messiah, that he would come and deliver them from the oppression of the Roman people. But Jesus, the first time, he didn't come to do that. The first time, he came to bring peace. You know, I think something that's really important as we look towards this Easter celebration for ourselves is remembering the peace that God has brought, the ability for us to have a relationship with him, but also recognizing as we look around at many friends and families and neighbors and coworkers. There's people that we have surrounding us that are still in that place of being an enemy of God. They've never accepted Christ. They haven't had their sins forgiven. And they're still in the position of being an enemy of God. And if they were to die today, they would suffer the wrath of God for eternity in hell. And that reality that we see people around us who are enemies of God, and we have the answer to how they can go from being an enemy to being a child, from being lost to being saved. We have the good news that can reveal to them how they can change their horrible position that is going to ultimately bring the wrath of God upon them. And this is why we spoke so much last week of getting out there and sharing with people and inviting them and allowing them to hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for them. So these Jews, they're excited about Jesus, but really they missed why he's there. Oh, finally, our conqueror. Oh, you Romans, you emperors, you you wait. We're coming for you. Jesus is going to destroy you. He's going to wipe you out. But that's not how Jesus came the first time. Because Jesus recognized the Jews had an even bigger need than they knew. They thought the biggest thing that we need is a deliverer from Rome. If we had that, everything would be great. Jesus, no, 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 you you have a bigger problem. You need someone to deliver you from your sin. If we could just have someone who could be the one who saves us physically from our oppression, Jesus says, no, no, you need to be saved spiritually from the wrath of God. So first we see how Jesus orchestrated both how and when he would enter Jerusalem Second, we see how Jesus' triumphal entry is different. Different from how the Romans typically did it, declaring this, I'm the conquering king. Different than how the Jews expected it, because that's really what they wanted. And now we're going to see two different responses. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, we're going to have two very different responses to how he does that. One very positive and one very negative. Let's start with the positive response we see in Luke's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road, 
Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Then in Mark chapter 11, verse 7, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So as Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, one of the ways that people respond to him is by recognizing who he actually is. They recognize him as their Messiah. They recognize him as their king. And they also recognize him as their savior. But as I mentioned, they were looking more for salvation from Rome than from their sin. But they still understood this aspect of Jesus. And to demonstrate this reception, notice that they do two specific things. First, we're told that they take their clothes, speaking of their outer garments, and they're laying them on the ground so that Jesus and this donkey and this really whole entourage of people can walk over that. Now, this is something that's really interesting that they do, because if you look back into the Old Testament, when kings were anointed, we see this is something that even in the nation of Israel that they did. Uh, the king Jehu, they did this for him, where they pull off their garments, they lay it before him to walk before them. It was a sign of an act of submission paid to a king that says, hey, we recognize who you are. And it's kind of rolling out the red carpet. Here is our garment. We're laying it before you with this submission to you because we believe that you are the rightful king over us. Now, this is also interesting because, you know, in our day to day, I mean, if we were, if I were to take off this shirt, throw it on the ground, let someone walk, I got plenty more shirts in my closet. It's not the end of the day if this thing gets ruined. But for most people in you know, Israel that time, they would have one outer garment and several undergarments. If you were more wealthy, you would have more. But many of the people, this is it. So this is a big sacrifice. I mean, you take their outer garment, lay it down, let some donkey trample it, and this whole crowd trample it. You know, that was a sacrifice, but it was like, man, we are into this. This is our king. He's coming, and we want to demonstrate that we recognize who he is. But there's something else that the people did as well. Here we're just told in Luke and Mark's gospel, they lay these branches, but the gospel of John tells us it's a specific branch. It's a palm branch. Uh, that's why it's often referred to this Sunday as Palm Sunday, because as Jesus enters, they're waving and lying these palm branches and their clothes on the ground for Jesus to march over it. And, you know, think, oh, that's great. Maybe they just grab some branches from the side of the road. Well, actually, this is more significant than they just grab some palm branches to put down before him, because this is something that every single year, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths lasted a whole week. Remember, we're talking about the greatest week in all of history? Well, they would always have this week of the Feast of Booths. And what was it doing? It was remembering back to God's salvation and deliverance from the nation of Egypt. That slavery that God saved them out of for a whole week, they would do this. And they're told that they would take these palm branches and they would wave them and they would praise God and they would rejoice and they would worship. And so it was this week of worship to God because he is their savior. Now, that's quite significant because imagine every year from the point of Exodus to now, they are having this Feast of Booths where they take these palm branches and declare praise to God for his salvation. And now the Messiah is coming, whom they know and expect to be their ultimate savior. And so when they take these palm branches, it's not just, oh, let's just lay a, a random branch before him. This was a declaration of, hey, we recognize, just like we take this time every week to celebrate God's salvation, we are celebrating you because we believe that you are the one that God has sent to save us. And so both of these things, the laying down of the clothes, uh, declaring Jesus as king, laying down the palm branches, declaring Jesus as the Savior, but also, that whole week in the Feast of Booths was mixed with rejoicing, songs of praise. And we're told some specific things that the people were saying. They weren't just waving branches. They were also declaring something 
to Jesus. Notice they rejoiced and praised God with a loud voice. The first thing we're told is for all the mighty works they had seen. Up to this point, Jesus has done so much. And they're declaring, oh Lord, we believe that you are the Messiah. We believe that you are our King. We believe you're our Savior. And they're just praising God for what Jesus had done up to this point. But then they say something more, which is even more significant. We're told in Mark's Gospel, they said, Hosanna. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now this term Hosanna is a wonderful term. It means save now. This is a term that speaks of the salvation of God. And they're quoting from Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26. It says this, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This psalm was all about the coming of the Messiah, all about the one who would God would send to save them, and they recognize this. And so as Jesus is coming, as they're waving these palm branches, you know, the palm branches are bringing us back to the Feast of Booths and recognizing God's salvation. But this quote from Psalm 118 shows what their heart was. Hosanna, save now. They're calling Jesus our Savior. They're recognizing who He is. And they are declaring that as He comes in triumphantly to Jerusalem. So they're recognizing Jesus as Messiah, as King, as Savior, and He is all of those things. But there's another group mixed with this group. And if you saw from the map earlier, you note that as Jesus comes in through the eastern gate, the temple's not far from it. And in the temple courts, there would have been many religious leaders, and we know the religious leaders up to this point have not believed in Jesus. And their response to all that's happening (laughs) is very different as you might expect it to be. Luke 19, 39 through 40 says this, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now this is like the worst nightmare of all for the Pharisees. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't believe he's the king. They don't believe he's a savior. They've already plotted to kill him and get rid of him. They hate the fact that his popularity has grown and grown. And like, hey, we're just going to deal with this once and for all. But now, you know, Jesus has been keeping things from getting to this place up to this point. There hasn't been this mass amount of people declaring him the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And that's the last thing these Pharisees ever want is for people to believe that about Jesus because they don't believe that about Jesus. And so as Jesus is riding in and this huge crowd is declaring that, you know, they're just so upset and they first speak to Jesus rebuke your disciples. All these people who are declaring this, these followers of yours, rebuke them. Well, why would they want Jesus to rebuke them? Because it's like, how dare they declare you to be the Messiah, to the Savior, God? You're not, according to them. And so you should rebuke these people for having the audacity to say that about you. You see, Not only did the Pharisees not believe, but they didn't want anyone else to believe in Jesus. They didn't want anyone else to accept Jesus for who he is and what he's done. But notice Jesus' response as they rebuke him and say, you you need to stop people ultimately from saying these things about you. Jesus says, I tell you that if if these should keep silent, meaning these people, the stones would immediately cry out. You know, Jesus is bringing up something that's so important, what we noted at the beginning here. This was God's ordained time for him to be revealed. This was God's ordained time for his, you know, for people to declare him for who he is, the Messiah, the King, the Savior. And so Jesus is saying, you know what, if I were to tell this group of people to be quiet, since this is the ordained time of God for me to be declared for who I am, the rocks would start to cry out. There would be no way to stop this from happening because this was the time that God has designed for me to be declared for who I am. So the Pharisees respond to this triumphal entry of Jesus by rejecting Jesus. 
rejecting that he's the Messiah, rejecting that he's king, rejecting that he is the Savior, and by wanting to stop others from accepting these realities and praising Jesus for them. And so we have two very different responses to Jesus' triumphal entry. You have the group that responds in praise, the group that responds in recognition that Jesus is their king, their Messiah, and at least their savior in the sense of savior from Rome. I don't think many of them fully grasp their need for save, being saved from sin at this point in time, but they're declaring these things. And then you have this response of not believing any of this stuff about Jesus. And you know what? These are the same two ultimate responses we have today. You have the response of people who recognize Jesus for who he is, that he is the Savior, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the one that God sent, that he is God himself. And they see this, and for many, they ultimately accept it, give their life to God, are saved from their sin. But then you have the other group. That, you know, they're just, they're going to reject like the Pharisees. We don't believe that Jesus is God. We don't believe that he is Savior. We don't believe any of these things that the Bible declares about him. And by the way, we don't want anyone else to believe either. So not only will we, you know, dig our feet in and try to, you know, never believe ourselves, we're going to try to keep as many other people from believing what we don't feel is true about Jesus. The reality is each person is responsible for themselves what they're going to choose. Am I going to choose to accept the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he's the king, that he's the savior? Or am I going to choose to reject that? Jesus wants a relationship with everyone. But in order for that to happen, we have to make a choice to believe in who he is, to believe in what he's done. But the great news is he's made it possible. He's done all the work. He's come as the man of peace. He's sacrificed himself to make peace between us and God. He's done what all that it takes for our sins to be forgiven. It's like, here, now I'm just doing is making you choose. <laughs> you don't have to choose and then do a bunch of things to make it happen. I did all the work. All you have to do is make a choice to accept the work that I've done. But I think something important for us who have already made that choice, who have already received Christ, is to ask ourselves a very important question. And that question is, what is your feeling and response to those who haven't yet received Jesus? You know, because we look at this world right now, and there's so much happening that is just completely opposite of what Jesus stands for, of what God would want. There are so many people who are just lost, and many more who are even more than just, you know, they're just against and adamant, and there's just a clear battle to try to destroy what God stands for, what the Bible holds to. And as we look at our culture, and we see the attacks that come against God and His Word, the question that I want you to ask yourself is, what is your heart towards those who are lost? What is your heart towards those who, at this point in time, are rejecting Jesus Christ? And as you think about that, we're going to conclude by looking at Jesus and how he responds to this group that rejected him. And I think it's so important to note how Jesus responds to this group that rejects him because the heart that Jesus has for those who have rejected him is the heart that we need to have. And as we look at the world, and we look at what's going on, and we look at people who are lost and have rejected Jesus, if this isn't the heart we have, we need to ask God to change our heart to be like this. Because this is truly the heart of God. Luke 19, 41-44 says this, Now as Jesus drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children with you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice Jesus' response here. He's come into Jerusalem. Many have received him. Many have declared who he is. He came to bring peace. But yet there were many who rejected him. 
And he goes into Jerusalem, and he's looking over Jerusalem, and we're told he starts to weep. The Greek word here translated weep means to wail and lament. It's a word to describe great sadness. Now notice that Jesus' sadness is not he's saddened for himself. He's not saddened because of what's about to happen going to the cross. He's not saddened because he's been rejected and his feelings have been hurt. He's saddened for the people who've rejected him. And the reason he is saddened for the people who've rejected him is because he realizes, I have come to bring you peace. And the only way for you to have peace with God, the only way for you to be saved from your sin is to accept me. And you have rejected the only thing that can keep you from the judgment of God. And now you're going to receive it. Now it's going to come. And this is something that he's just broken by because he doesn't want that for these people. He came to bring peace and they rejected that and now they're going to get wrath. Jesus wept because he loved the people that rejected him. He did not want that for them. He came to rescue them from that. But he wasn't going to force that upon them. They had to choose to accept it but many chose to reject it. You know, when we look at this lost world around us rejecting Jesus, how does it cause us to respond? When you look at people and you recognize this rejection is ultimately leading them to hell, if they don't change, they will stay an enemy of God. If they don't recognize and willingly submit themselves to Jesus Christ, man, what's coming is so horrible. They're going to suffer the judgment of God in a way that is just unfathomable. And when we recognize that, even though that they do horrible things, even though that they're very sinful, even though that they might be super against the way in which we believe and live our life, is there a sense in which we look at them and where they're headed and are saddened and truly weep over that? Or are we just hardened to it? Or even maybe, you know what, because of the way in which you treat Christians or because of the view that you have of God, this is you, what you deserve. Well, yeah, it is what they deserve. And guess what? It's also what we deserved. But that's not the heart of God. That's not what He wants. An inner city church just received a new pastor. So one of the elders starts coming to the pastor's office to welcome him. And as he came to the door of the office, the elder saw the pastor looking out the window over the city, just weeping. So wanting to console the pastor, the elder said, don't worry. After you've been here a while, you get used to the tragic condition of this inner city. The pastor responded, yes, I know. That's why I'm crying. I think the sad reality is so often we get to that place where we get used to the sin, we get used to the depravity around us, and we're no longer heartbroken. We're no longer weeping for these people. We lose our compassion and heart for them. And when I was a missionary in Glasgow, we had teams come every year and, you know, do different things. And there was, you know, pretty much every night after we'd be out all day doing ministry, we'd get together and we'd just kind of share about what God did in that day. And there was just one guy who was so broken by what he saw. And, you know, understand Glasgow is a pretty rough town. It was the murder capital of Europe. It led in heroin abuse, alcoholism. So they had a lot of problems, a lot of messed up people. And we're out and about among these folks. And this guy just sees this, and he's broken, and he's crying, and he's praying for these people. You know what? As I listen to that, the Lord really convicted me that I had gotten to a point as I looked at this city and I looked at these people that I was ministering to, that my heart was different than the first day I came. That I was starting to get hardened, that it was like, yeah, I see that all the time. Yeah, that's a common place. Yeah, they're doing this or doing that. And you know what? I was like, man, I need to get back to where this guy is. He's broken because of this. He wants to see lives transformed because of this. And there was, if I was honest with myself, man, I'm getting hardened. And I had to pray, Lord, give me your heart once again for these people. Because God's heart is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, many of us have lost family, lost friends, 
lost coworkers, lost neighbors. We spend time around them. We see their continual rejection of God. And for some of us, we lose that compassion for them. Maybe we think, well, they're never going to change. I've shared with them so many times. Look at their life. And, and we get to this kind of hard place where we're no longer weeping. We're no longer really even interceding for them. It's just kind of, well, they've made their bed. They're going to have to lie in it mindset instead of, man, I'm broken for these people who desperately need Jesus. And if we get to that hard place where we're losing compassion, we need to come to the Lord and ask him to change our hearts and to give us his heart for the people that are in our life that don't know him. The greatest week in human history. It starts with this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It continues with the crucifixion and concludes with the resurrection. And the reason this is the greatest week in human history is because of what this week brings to us. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead paid for our sin, took the judgment, but also conquered sin and death through His resurrection. And you know this is what we celebrate. This is what is so wonderful. This is what next week's message will be about. It's the good news of what God has done to bring peace between man and Him. To pay the price for the thing that kept us as His enemy. And so in preparation for this wonderful celebration, as we hopefully each day of this week, not just today or not just Good Friday or not just next Sunday, but that we contemplate every day, prepare ourselves for this. I want to say first is just that challenge to say, man, there are so many people who don't know the good news, so many people who are enemies of God right now, so many people who are lost, and I have that good news. And I would really encourage you, if you're bold enough, proclaim it to them. And if you're like, oh, I'm not sure I can do that, well, you know what, take a flyer, at least invite them to church, at least bring them or have them come next week where they'll hear the good news and pray for them daily through this week. But I also want to give you a challenge. And this is the thing I love. Look at the worship. Look at the praise that the people who actually recognize Jesus for who He is does. As they lay down their garments recognizing Him as King, as they wave these branches of palms, and, and they're declaring, Hosanna, save now, and they praise God for all that Jesus has done, that that would be in our preparation leading up to Easter, leading up to Good Friday, that we would just have that heart full of worship, remembering all that God has done, how He saved us, the great works that He's done in our life. Because so often, you know, we're just kind of bombarded with all the things that this world's throwing at us, and we can lose sight of the many, many reasons we have to praise. And I want us just to conclude this morning praising the Lord in song. I'm going to have Colson come back up, and we're going to just take some time, you know, to just sing and declare these praises to the Lord. And I just really want to encourage you, think of the words. We specifically chose songs that kind of relate to the triumphal entry. And I want you to think about the words and think about what Jesus has done and think about who He is and just sing it out from your heart. Declare these things because this is who He is. And um, then I'll come up at the end and share some announcements for this week. But let's just take some time to worship the Lord.